Good evening. Don't panic, says the president, as a new COVID variant called Omicron knocks at America's door. Is it already here? And does it matter? The wife of a Honduran president who was deposed in a military coup supported by the United States is elected in an apparent landslide. And the attorney general of New York releases documents accusing former Governor Cuomo of sexual harassment. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, November 29th, 2021. The World Health Organization warned, warned today that the global risk from the Omicron variant is very high based on the early evidence saying the mutated coronavirus could lead to surges with severe consequences. It was WHO's strongest, most explicit warning yet about the new version that was first identified days ago by researchers in South Africa. Speaking today, President Joe Biden says this time the world and the country is ready. This variant is a cause for concern, not a cause for panic. We have the best vaccine in the world, the best medicines, the best scientists, and we're learning more every single day. And we'll fight this variant with scientific and, and knowledgeable actions and speed, not chaos and confusion. Appearing with President Biden was his chief COVID advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who says the United States was already watching international visitors closely. When people come into the United States, they have to be tested before they get on and they have to show vaccination documentation. So even before Omnicorn came in, fortunately for us, the PCRs that we mostly use would pick up this very unusual variant that has a real large constellation of mutations. Fortunately for us, that the PCRs that we do do pick it up. But with a fourth or fifth wave now threatening the gains made against the virus since last year's devastating holiday outbreak, Biden says there's light at the end of the tunnel. I expect this not to be the new normal. I expect the new normal to be everyone ends up getting vaccinated in the booster shot. So we reduce the number of people who aren't protected to such a low degree that we're not seeing the spread of these viruses. Replying to criticism that South Africa was treated unfairly despite identifying the new bug, the president replied the U.S. has spent large sums helping South Africa. And to their credit, the scientific community in South Africa quickly notified the world of the emergence of this new variant. This kind of transparency is to be encouraged and applauded because it increases our ability to respond quickly to any new threats. And that's exactly what we did. The very day the World Health Organization identified the new variant, I took immediate steps to restrict travel from countries in southern Africa. But while we have that travel restrictions can slow the speed of Omicron, it cannot prevent it. But here's what it does. It gives us time, gives us time to take more actions. And the president added, if new drugs or vaccinations become necessary because of Omicron, the U.S. is ready to pitch in. My team is already working with officials at Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson to develop contingency plans for vaccines or boosters if needed. And I will also direct the FDA and the CDC to use the fastest process available without cutting any corners for safety to get such vaccines approved and on the market if needed. And we'll do that the same way that any modifications are needed or current treatments need uh, used to help those with uh, who get ill with the COVID virus. 
And while some advocates like New York's Mayor Bill de Blasio have said they want to see vaccine requirements for domestic flights like the ones used internationally, Biden says he's not ready to make that call. Well, at this point, that's not been recommended. I would make for my uh, the scientific community to give, give me a recommendation on that. President Joe Biden earlier today. Meanwhile, a widening circle of countries are reporting cases of the variant and slamming their doors in an act now, ask questions later approach, while scientists race to figure out just how dangerous the mutant version might be. Japan announced it's barring entry to all foreign visitors, joining Israel in doing so. Morocco banned all incoming flights. Other countries, including the United States and members of the European Union, have moved to prohibit travelers arriving from southern Africa. Spain today became one of the latest countries to report its first confirmed Omicron case detected in a traveler who returned Sunday from South Africa after making a stopover in Amsterdam. Meanwhile, South African officials are outraged by the mushrooming bans on flights from their country. Today, JFK Airport saw the last direct flight from South Africa arrive uh, in this country as the ban came into effect. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa said Sunday the bans are a clear and completely unjustified departure from the commitment that many of these countries made at the meeting of the G20 countries in Rome last month. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, responding to a question about South Africa, says the purpose of the travel ban is to protect, not punish. A larger point, Yamish, is that it is a much larger spread in South Africa than it is at this point in Europe and other countries. We will continue to assess if there are additional restrictions that need to be put in place. But again, this is not about punishing anyone. This is about protecting the American people. So when there are thousands of people or hundreds or thousands of people who have been tracked for a variant in a particular country and a much larger number than another country, obviously the health and medical advisors assess that it would be helpful in protecting the American people to restrict travel from those countries where there is wider spread. The president made the travel restrictions in place on the pure basis of recommendation of his health and medical advisors. And Saki laid out the ways the U.S. has helped by providing vaccinations and other health materials to Southern Africa. We have sent close to 8 million doses to South Africa, 13 million to Southern Africa, over 93 million to Africa, and 275 million to the world. Uh, This is not meant to be a criticism. It is meant to give people understanding of what the challenges are in a lot of countries, uh, is that it's not just about having vaccine doses. It is about ensuring there's operational capacity, which is not meant to be a criticism of any leaders in government, but more it's challenging to have public health officials in all communities of any country available. And also there are hesitancy issues in not just the United States, but many parts of the world. So it's about having not just the vaccine doses, but also the apparatus, the capability, and also addressing uh, vaccine hesitancy, which is, as you know, something that we have worked hard to address in this country. And in South Africa, USAID's COVID-19 vaccine funding has mobilized and trained healthcare workers, established and equipped vaccination sites, supported vaccine service, delivery in rural areas, and supported a national campaign to promote vaccine acceptance. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, during the summer, South Africa's COVID-19 vaccine rollout was severely hampered when the country had to discard at least two million Johnson & Johnson vaccine doses. The vaccines were found by the uh, U.S. Food and Drug Administration to be unsuitable for use due to possible contamination of their ingredients at a Baltimore plant.
In more international news, Jamara Castro is poised to become the first female president of Honduras in a landslide victory 12 years after her husband was forced from power in a military-backed coup. Although the results are expected to change as votes are counted, Castro holds a commanding 20-point lead over her nearest rival, Nasri Esfura of the ruling National Party. Castro, 62, declared herself the winner in a speech before a crowd of jubilant supporters late last night and promised to form a government of peace and justice. Let's have direct democracy. Let's have participatory democracy. Today I reach out to my opponents because I have no enemies and call for dialogue. In 2009, Castro's husband, Manuel Zelaya, was ousted as president by business elites and the military, but Castro became a force in the protest movement that emerged in the crisis. And supporters across the nation took to the streets to celebrate, including in the capital, Tegucigalpa, where people gathered along one of the main boulevards to party. Over the past four years, President Juan Orlando Hernandez and members of the Conservative National Party have admired in a string of corruption and drug trafficking allegations, a brother of Hernandez was convicted in New York of drug trafficking, and the president himself has been accused by prosecutors of overseeing state-sponsored drug trafficking. Looming over this year's vote was the memory of the 2017 general election, which was marred by allegations of fraud and post-election violence. On the campaign trail, Castro promised to pull Honduras out of the abyss we had been buried in by neoliberalism, a narco-dictator, and corruption. The National Party resorted to scare tactics, warning that Castro would legalize abortion and turn Honduras into a communist nation. Castro has proposed easing the country's draconian abortion ban, one of the most restrictive in the world, but only under limited circumstances. Associate Professor of Chicanix, Latinx, and Transnational Studies at Pitzer College is Soyapa Portillo Vieira. She says Hondurans voted in historic numbers, a 62% a 62 turnout, and her party is also likely to win mayoral elections in San Pedro Sula and Tegucigalpa. Portillo Vieira spoke with WBAI today. ...is incredibly important because it comes 12 years after the 2009 coup d'etat, which broke the rule of law in the country. There has been 12 years of persecution of activists, persecution of water and land defenders, black and indigenous people. Over the years, particularly when Juan Orlando Hernández was, was elected in 2013, um, you know, there were just all these corruption scandals under his administration, stealing from the coffers of government. The party stole $90 million from the Social Security Administration. This is in 2015, come 2020, COVID pandemic. The hospitals are devastated. There's no medication. There's no resources to treat COVID patients. For Hondurans, last night watching the elections take place and watching people on social media talking about why they voted for Xiomara Castro, they said it's because we're voting for our dead, the people that couldn't be here to fight for a new Honduras. People do see this administration as a new awakening. The caravans coming to the U.S. and people exiting Honduras, is this going to be affected in any way by the changes? People that are facing displacement are people that are migrating, people that are facing joblessness. 
are people that are migrating, uh, people who are persecuted by narco-trafficking or gang warfare are migrating. And so she said, no more corruption, right? No more space for narco-trafficking and, and gangs. So it's a tall order, but I think she's addressing the reasons why people are migrating. The coup d'etat broke the country financially, and it never really recovered from the devastating economic effect. She has a tall order. She's inheriting a country that's broken, a country that's facing uh, joblessness, a country that's facing violence. These are not issues that uh, only plague Honduras. This is issues that plague the region of Central America. About the country-to-country -country relationship between Honduras and the United States and how that relates to the region. The president-elect is going to have work across regions. They need to respond regionally to the issue of migration so that they can really stand up to Biden um, and, for example, demand that DPS holders who are Hondurans um, receive a path to legalization, that documented folks receive a path to legalization because it's not realistic that after living in the United States for 15, 20 years, people are going to go back. She's winning, and I'm currently looking at the page of the, you know, the voting rights, the the electoral college, and she's still holding a 53.61% lead with half of the ballots counted. She said yesterday in the press conference she is going to immediately sit down to dialogue today, right, the next day with social movement organizations, as well as international partners. So I think that's on her agenda as the days come. Anything like that? People seem to forget is that this is the first woman president to be elected in Honduras. It's a really momentous occasion. She has come out and endorsed uh, women's rights and women's rights to choose. She's endorsed LGBTI communities. In fact, the party has a new secretariat of LGBTI uh, transgender communities. And she's promising dialogue and, and a government of reconciliation. And I think that everybody's very excited to see how this plays out in the months to come. Sayapa Portillo Vieira is Associate Professor of Chicanx Latinx Transnational Studies at Pitzer College. Final results in the Honduras elections are not expected for days or were not expected for days, leaving the country on edge. But the apparent landslide victory of Jomara Castro may lead to an official pronouncement by the end of today. And in related news, Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel congratulated Jamara Castro and her Liberty and Refoundation, or Libre, party for what they termed her resounding victory in the presidential elections held on Sunday. Diaz-Canel recalled former President Manuel Zelaya was deposed by a coup d'etat backed by President Barack Obama's administration. On June 28, 2009, the Honduran Armed Forces arrested Zelaya and illegally transferred him to Costa Rica, said the Cuban president. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. News of the death of a black fashion icon has been sweeping the globe. Virgil Abloh, the prolific fashion designer known for styling stars like Kanye West and Kid Cootie, died Sunday after a private battle with cancer. He was 41. His death was announced in a tweet by LVMH, the parent company of Louis Vuitton, where Abloh had been the men's artistic director since 2018. In a tweeted statement, LVMH CEO Bernard Arnold said Virgil was not only a genius designer, a visionary, he was also a man with a beautiful soul and a great wisdom. A post to Abloh's Instagram account said he had privately been battling a rare and aggressive form of cancer known as cardiac angiosarcoma, which affects the heart. A statement on his
his Instagram account said, he often said, everything I do is for the 17-year-old version of myself, believing deeply in the power of art to inspire future generations. Abloh's work found itself in every cranny of popular culture. In April, rapper Kid Cootie wore an ankle-length floral dress as a guy designed by Abloh while performing on Saturday Night Live. The dress was noticeably reminiscent of one worn by rocker Kurt Cobain, who died by suicide on April 5th, 1994. Cobain wore the dress on the cover of The Face magazine a year before his death. And in more COVID news from closer to home, the Omicron variant has yet to show up in New York or the United States, but Mayor Bill de Blasio says it's just a matter of time. During the mayor's news briefing today, he announced an advisory to all residents to wear a mask in all indoor settings, regardless of vaccination status, as concerns about the recently discovered Omicron variant of the novel coronavirus spread around the world. De Blasio said that the new variant is under scrutiny by the state and the incoming mayor are very, very carefully watching this situation. Uh, our health leadership has been in constant touch with federal authorities and state authorities, everyone sharing information closely coordinated. Uh, we have obviously a new situation here that we need to get all the facts on and make sure we inform the public as we get more information. But a high level of coordination uh, underway right now. I spoke this morning with Governor Hochul to coordinate city and state efforts. Uh, spoke yesterday at length with our mayor-elect Eric Adams, who you'll hear from in just a moment. Everyone focused together on getting all the facts about Omicron and making decisions based on the data and the science. De Blasio also announced a vaccination mandate for employees of child care programs, including more than 102,000 child care and early intervention program workers. The mandate will go into effect December 20th. Mayor-elect Eric Adams says he fully supports the city's new advisory. We are still watching this variant closely, uh, but this could prove to be a critical moment uh, in our war with COVID-19. And we must uh, treat it at that that way. That's I think it's so important uh, what you're doing now and what you're doing with the incoming administration and the coordination with the governor. Uh, I believe that we're seeing a clear message being sent to New Yorkers uh, that uh, the vaccine is our most potent weapon, but our coordination is a close second to that, and we're going to have that coordination. And how we choose to respond as a city will show our resolve against this virus to each other and to the rest of the globe. I think the globe is watching New York. And we want to thank the South African scientists, something that many of us uh, have not acknowledged. They detected this new variant and immediately alerted the international community, something we did not see previously. And we want to thank them for that. And that's the mayor-elect, Eric Adams. Meanwhile, Health Commissioner Dr. Dave Chachki gave the rundown of what's known about the Omicron variant. We don't have reliable evidence yet about Omicron's speed of spread compared to Delta, but it does have similar mutations to other transmissible variants, and there are some reports from South Africa indicating potentially rapid spread. Second, severity. We have even less evidence about whether Omicron contributes to more severe or, as is possible, less severe disease. You may have heard some reports of milder illness in South Africa, but take them with a grain of salt. Rigorous investigations are still underway since hospitalizations and deaths lag cases. 
We do know that some of the treatments for COVID-19 disease, including new oral antivirals anticipated to be available soon, are still likely to work. Third, immunity. This is perhaps the most important scientific question as to whether Omicron pierces immunity from vaccination or from prior infection. Preliminary evidence suggests that those who've had COVID-19 in the past may be more easily reinfected with Omicron. This underscores our strong recommendation to get vaccinated regardless of whether you have already had COVID-19. The World Health Organization and vaccine manufacturers are working to further understand how the vaccines hold up against Omicron. Based on what we have seen with other variants, we do expect the vaccines to retain some degree of effectiveness, but precisely how much will take a few weeks to clarify. For the most recent week of data, unvaccinated New Yorkers were nearly seven times more likely to be infected than vaccinated residents. To summarize, we still have a lot to learn about the Omicron variant, but its emergence lends urgency to the importance of the precautions we've all become familiar with, particularly vaccination, masking, and testing. New York City Health Commissioner Dr. Dave Chokshi. Prosecutors, meanwhile, asked the United States Supreme Court today to reinstate Bill Cosby's sexual assault conviction, complaining the verdict was thrown out over a questionable agreement that the comic claimed gave him lifetime immunity. Cosby's lawyers have long argued that he relied on a promise that he would never be charged when he gave damaging testimony in an accuser's civil suit in 2006. The admissions were later used against him in two criminal trials. The only written evidence of such a promise is a 2005 press release from the then prosecutor, Bruce Castor, who said he didn't have enough evidence to arrest Cosby. The bid to revive the case is a long shot. The U.S. Supreme Court accepts fewer than 1% of the petitions it receives. Crosby, 84, became the first celebrity convicted of sexual assault in the Me Too era when the jury at his 2018 retrial found him guilty of drugging and molesting college sports administrator Andrea Kostrand in 2004. Meanwhile, in New York, opening statements in Manhattan federal court today alleged that Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein were partners in crime in the sexual abuse of teenage girls. Assistant United States Attorney Lara Pomerantz said at the start of Maxwell's sex trafficking trial that the British socialite and Epstein enticed girls as young as 14 to engage in so-called massages in which sex abuse came to be seen as casual and normal after they were showered with money and gifts. Maxwell, who once dated the financial is accused of acting as Epstein's chief enabler, recruiting and grooming young girls for him to abuse. Maxwell has pleaded not guilty and vehemently denies wrongdoing. She's been jailed in Brooklyn since her arrest, calling the claims against her absolute rubbish. The wealthy Oxford-educated Maxwell is the daughter of British newspaper magnate Robert Maxwell, who died in 1991 after falling off his yacht named the Lady Ghislaine near the Canary Islands. Jeffrey Epstein died in a mysterious suicide at the federal lockup in Lower Manhattan. That was blamed on guards who slept at their post, allegedly, and falsified records about patrolling the jail. And in more New York uh, news involving sex and powerful political figures, Attorney General Letitia James's office today released more transcripts that were part of the investigation into former Governor Andrew Cuomo that ultimately led to his resignation on August 24th. Among the revelations, a personnel file of Lindsay Boylan, one of the first women to accuse Cuomo of harassment, was leaked to the media. A letter was circulated around the office attesting to the governor's good behavior. And as the scandal began to mount in 2021, Cuomo took on out 
outside advisors that included his CNN anchor brother, Chris Cuomo. Text messages show Chris Cuomo working with top Cuomo aide Melissa DeRosa on shaping statements to the press and using his sources to determine when potentially damaging stories were going to break about his brother. But the governor still maintains his innocence. In a video of a deposition from July, Cuomo was defiant in denouncing the allegations against him. Were there occasions when Ms. Camisa would come to help you and you'd be on the first floor or the second floor, or was it more common, one or the other? Both. But again, remember the, the setting. There are numerous people in the mansion who are coming and going. Uh, so you have numerous, you always have numerous staff there, you know. Five, ten, fifteen people, depending on the day, coming and going. Um, and do you ever remember um, giving her a hug and then uh, putting her hand, your hands, on her breasts? I. That never happened. That never happened. And so you don't remember ever uh, putting that your hand near the press? That never happened. That never happened. Do you remember any instance where she said to you uh, while you were hugging that you're going to get us in trouble? That never happened. Do you ever remember uh, you saying, I don't care? That never happened. It's just, you know, one point there has to be a little reality. To touch a woman's breast, who I hardly know, in the mansion, with 10 staff around, with my family in the mansion, to say, I don't care who sees us. You've investigated me for six years. I would have to lose my mind to do some such a thing. It would be an act of insanity to touch a woman's breast and make myself vulnerable to a woman uh, for such an accusation. I am 63 years old. I have been in every public office, state, federal. Numerous people have tried to set me up. I'm always wary of people. I have phenomenal precautions. It would be an act of insanity. Can you ever hear me saying, somebody says to me, you're going to get us into trouble. I don't care. I mean, it's not, to me, it's just not even feasible. Former Governor Andrew Cuomo, Letitia James, has thrown her hat into the ring for next year's gubernatorial election. She'll be up against New York's first woman governor, Kathy Hochul, who was lieutenant governor until Cuomo stepped down, and reportedly Mayor Bill de Blasio. And finally, with construction of the controversial Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project that's in plan for the stretch of the Lower East Side occupied by East River Park, stalled by court order, the city today unveiled a bigger 
$5 billion project to build a flood defense system along the one-mile stretch of coast from the Brooklyn Bridge to the Battery. The proposal was unveiled by New York's Economic Development Corporation and the Mayor's Office of Climate Resiliency during virtual public meetings this month and will be formally proposed by the end of the year. The The proposal will then enter the fundraising phase as the city searches for the money to pay for the project. The East River Park Resiliency Project was supported by some local politicians but opposed by environmentalists and others who didn't want to lose the access to the rare park in a crowded corner of the city or see nearly a thousand trees cut down. An appellate panel is considering that the project violated a law requiring the state legislature to approve closure of the city park. Another suit by one of two bidders on the job says the city was wrong was wrong to pick a competitor with less experience, while a third suit accuses the city of not meeting requirements for women and minority contractors. And that's some of the news for Monday, November 29th, 2021. The news is producer Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.